So last week we t- I've talked about uh, started talking about first or Philippians chapter one verses twenty seven through thirty, and we're talking about living a life worthy of the gospel, right? And if you remember last week, I began by giving us a history lesson on how Paul and Silas started uh, the Philippian church. And we learned a lot of cool stuff. We learned that the church began through the salvation of a uh, strange group of people. We had a businesswoman, Lydia. We had a slave girl. And we had a Roman jailer. We're the, kind of the first converts of Paul and Silas in the beginning nucleus of this church. And uh, we also learned the city of Philippi is a Roman colony. And it was very hostile to Christianity from the very beginning, Right? Remember when uh, Paul and Silas uh, delivered the slave girl from that python spirit, their, her owners were extremely upset and had them arrested and flogged and thrown into jail. So from the very first day, the message of Jesus was meeting opposition in this Roman colony. Twelve years later, after they had started uh, the church in Philippi, Paul is in a Roman jail, probably on house arrest, and he writes this letter to the Philippian Christians. Now, remember, the big idea of Philippians is what? Say it together. Joy. Joy. The big idea is joy. But the other big idea of the gospel is suffering. You see, even though Paul is stuck in jail... He is experiencing joy. Joy because he knows, he knows where his final destination is. Joy because his imprisonment is actually allowing him to share the gospel with top-ranking Roman soldiers. Paul knows that the Philippians are also experiencing the same kind of suffering. And so he writes them about what it looks like. That's where we're at, verse 27 through 30, what it looks like to live worthy of the gospel. And so last week I shared some things. I shared what Paul says about uh, us living worthy of the gospel. And first I shared uh, that Paul says we are to be citizens of heaven. The Philippians lived in a Roman colony, but living worthy of the gospel, it means that we put our citizenship in heaven first. For us, that means we put our citizenship in heaven before our American citizenship. And then Paul, he uses the word worthy. And we talked about how worthy is a comparative term, right? It's, it's the picture of scales. And, and it means that we put something of great value and great worth on this side of the scale, and then we compare it to something else on the other side. And Paul tells us that the lives that we live, it must be equal to the weight of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind that what we weigh our lives against isn't other people's lives or lifestyles. I'm better than her, so I'm good. I wish I was good as them, but I'm not. No, that's not what we weigh ourselves against. It's the gospel. It is the gospel. Living worthy 
is a gospel-centric lifestyle. We center our lives on the gospel of Jesus. We weigh our lives against it and only it. I also shared last week some characteristics of people who live worthy of the gospel. First, we're spiritually persistent, right? The Holy Spirit is our source. We live and move by the power of the Holy Spirit and nothing else. We don't have anything else, right? Where this isn't pull it up, get it together, pull it up by your bootstraps. It's Holy Spirit living in and dependence to Him. We rely on the Holy Spirit to keep us persistent no matter what the world throws at us. When we obey the direction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, we are living worthy of the gospel. And then Paul talks about living worthy means that we are unified, that we are a team, that we function as a team and we stay unified with one another. It's like like athletes or soldiers. We stand side by side, unified. We, We stand our ground together against the enemy. And our unity, again, it's centered on our faith in the gospel. There may be things that we disagree about on minor issues. I'm sure of it. But living worthy of the gospel, it means we stand together like soldiers on a battlefield. Standing not against each other, but against our common enemy unified and in complete agreement on the faith of the gospel. And then lastly, I shared that Paul tells us to be fearless. Living as citizens worthy of the gospel first requires that we stand together, grounded in the immovable work of the Holy Spirit, and then we strive together side by side like athletes determined to win the game. But Paul says there's more if we are to live worthy. And that is that we are to not be afraid or frightened in anything by our opponents. And this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that is from God. Living worthy of the gospel means Jesus, means that we must be fearless. We have to be fearless in the face of opposition. So today, there's your recap. So today, I want to finish this passage, and I want to talk about verses 29 and verse 30. Now, I want to read the whole passage again in context, just so we're all remembering it. Verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here I still have. Now, as I like to do, I want to look a little deeper at the wording of this verse. Because in the language, there is an important principle that we cannot miss if we are going to live worthy of the gospel. 
And in verse 29, Paul says, For it has been granted to you. Now that word granted is the Greek word charizomai. Say that together. <laughs> charizomai. And it means to give graciously, to give generously, to give freely or graciously as a favor. And so this word can literally be translated graced. So if we were to retranslate this verse, it could read, For it has been graced to you. For God has graciously given you. So in other words, what Paul is telling these Philippians, he's saying, You are so loved. You are so cherished. You are so highly favored by God that He has freely and graciously given you gifts. And the first favor that God did for the Philippian believers is the gracious gift of believing in Jesus. Right? That's what it says in verse 29. It says, For it has been granted, and I added these words, graced and freely given as a favor to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him. See, the gracious gift of believing in Christ is a magnificent blessing. And it is the grand evidence that God looked on us with lots of favor. In fact, John 1.12 says, to all who did receive him and who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is our eternal blessing from God. Salvation, it is a gift given to us by God. To know God and to believe in Him and to understand our need of Christ as a substitution, it comes to us only because God did us a favor. Only by the means of a generous, gracious, free gift. All the benefits, all the blessings, all the inheritance, it was graced to us. God said, let me do you a favor. Here you go. And Paul is reminding us, he's reminding the Philippians that they have been granted or graced to believe in him. That's awesome. Living as a citizen of heaven, worthy of the gospel, it requires that we understand this gift of salvation. Because it's been granted to us. It has been graced to us. Pull it up, pull it together. That's not the gift. It was, I'm going to do you a favor. Because I love you so much. It's a gift. It's freely given. And I could share probably an entire message on just salvation through grace, and probably should, but I want to look at the second gift that God has graced us with in this verse. Let's read it again. For it has been granted, 
graced and freely given as a favor to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Paul is presenting two wonderful gifts that have been generously and freely given to us as a favor. Believing in Jesus and suffering for Jesus. Everyone say, gee, thanks, Paul. (laughs) This is where I'm going to focus today. I want to focus on the theology of suffering. We're all very excited and deeply appreciative of the grace of salvation, but we know nearly nothing of the grace of suffering. Paul says that living as citizens of heaven, worthy of the gospel, if we're going to do this, We have to have both graces working in our life. And I feel very strongly about this word right now. I'm going to ask everyone, I need you to please lean in and listen to what the Bible has to say about a theology of suffering. And I'm a little bummed that we're missing a bunch of youth and young adults because I especially want you guys to listen in. I need you to pay attention. And I ask this because as amazing as your generation is in so many ways, your generation is also the most obsessed with fame, popularity, being liked, being told you're amazing. You know, there's a reason that there are so many blogs and videos out there about narcissism. It is because it is an epidemic among our youth. And here's another reason I need young people to listen in. It's because because you young people have been sheltered and insulated from nearly every kind of pain and suffering that life can offer. And believe me, this didn't start with you, okay? Your grandparents and your great-grandparents, they were the me generation. Self-preservation and self-indulgence began with them. And it has been passed down to my generation, which passed it down to yours. And because of generations of narcissistic living, It has perverted the gospel. And unfortunately, this mutated version of the gospel, it is at your doorstep right now. And so you are either going to kill it and discover authentic Christianity, or it will mutate again under your leadership and cease being the gospel of the Bible. That's how serious this is right now. So I want to do my part in telling you the truth. I want to speak truthfully. It's our mission, right? I want to speak truthfully this morning. But what you do with it is going to determine the future. 
Because we are at a crossroads right now. I believe Christianity is failing in the church because we do not understand the theology of suffering. So before we start looking at what a theology of suffering is, I just want to say what it's not. Okay? Sometimes to understand something, uh, you need to know what it's not before we know what it is. And so when Paul talks about the grace of suffering to the Philippians and in lots of other places in the New Testament, Paul is not talking about suffering that comes from our fallen nature or the nature of sin. All suffering does not equal suffering for the gospel. For instance, sickness and disease is not a part of the grace of suffering. Okay? God does not make us sick, and He takes no delight in our suffering from sickness. So, I don't want to hear anyone say, well, I've had back pain for 10 years, and this must be what Pastor Tom said we need to do to suffer for God. Nope. No, your lifelong pain or disease is not the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about. The tragic loss of a loved one too early in life is not the grace of suffering that Paul is talking about. Yes, there is grace and help from God to be comforted and to carry on. But to say God wants your child or spouse to die so that you can suffer for him is wrong. Now, there's a lot of nuance in some of this. What if my son did mission work in a nation that was hostile and he died for it? Would that be me suffering for the gospel? Yes, it would. Why? Because he gave his life for the faith of the gospel. When you and I sin, there are consequences like losing a job, going to jail, not having peace, maybe getting a disease because you shared a needle, maybe being in an accident because you were drunk driving and you lost an arm. Though those are incredibly tragic events, they are not the suffering that Paul is talking about. So again, none of this, well, I did something bad and God is punishing me with suffering. No. God will discipline us. But the lifelong suffering, like losing an arm, that was self-inflicted. Losing a job, because of my sinful behavior at work or can't show up on time or whatever, that's self-inflicted. That's not God. That's not suffering that he's talking about. All of that can be avoided when we live a life worthy of the gospel. So suffering for sinful behavior is not what Paul is talking about. Okay? The grace of suffering that has been granted to us is a suffering for the sake of Christ. 
It is a suffering that we do when we live faithfully for Jesus. You see, the suffering that comes to a Christian as a Christian, for living as a Christian, and this is important, it is not a sign of God's neglect in our life. But it's actually proof that grace is at work in our life. I mean, let's remember what Timothy said. He said, chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, I, back when I was in college, my first year of school at Ball State, I was not serving the Lord at all. I was serving everything else, my flesh, whatever, living my best narcissistic life. <laughs> and I had a roommate from high school, and we, we were in the dorm, we were in La Follette, and um, halfway through the year, another buddy of ours from high school got kicked out of his dorm because he went on academic probation or something, and so he didn't want to commute, and he asked if he could crash at our you know, little dorm room. So now our two-man dorm room is a three-man dorm room. And so we did about a semester of that, and we thought, hey, let's get a house together next year. You know, let's do the, the second-year thing and get a house. And, and so we were like, yeah, sure. And so we went out, you know, that, that spring and looked for houses, and we, the three of us found a house and signed the lease, and then school finished, and I went home. Well, that May, after I came home, I decided I'm going to radically serve the Lord with everything in my heart. I'm giving him everything. I am turning away from everything. And God did an amazing work. Yes, thank you, Jesus. But next year, I'm going back to my house. And I've signed a lease in. And I've got two roommates who now don't live like I live. I was so appreciative of what God had done in my life, and I knew that all my friends would just love Jesus <laughs> after telling them. And so the rest of that year was spent, me not fully converting any of them, and them mostly making fun of me. I remember... Um, we were in the living room, and my two roommates were there. Another guy from high school was there. He had his girlfriend. There were a couple other girls hanging out, and we were talking. They, they were talking. <laughs> I was watching TV. They were talking and uh, talking about hooking up and all that kind of stuff, and, of course, they, loved, they pulled me in, and I'm like, I'm still a virgin. And so it was, you know, a great laugh roar, you know, as they kind of poke fun at me. And then, we, you know, my one roommate started really in on me, and he was, somehow we were talking about how, you know, how are you even going to get a girl if you're not willing to, you know, hook up or something like that. And I, <laughs> I said, I'll tell you how I'm going to get a girl. I'm going to woo her. <laughs> I use those words. It's true, isn't it, love? 
You were wooed. So wooed. I, yeah, it was, they weren't laughing with me, though. They were laughing at me, and I really got it. I, it was, you know, I would be, some nights, I, I would be in my room uh, doing my, my schoolwork, and I'd have my headphones on, and I'd be jamming my, you know, worship uh, tapes, <laughs> tapes. <laughs> and, you know, I'd be in there, and I wouldn't sing loud, because I didn't want everybody here, but I would, you know, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the earth rejoice. And my roommate would come and he'd beat on the door and open it up. What's going on in here? I'm ready to see some pea green soup being spewed everywhere. You sound like you're possessed of the devil. I mean, just, just to antagonize me. But you know what? I didn't stop. Could I have stayed quiet? Could I not make waves? Could I have kept Jesus to myself? I could have. But the gracious gift of salvation and the price that Jesus paid for my sins and my roommates, it was overwhelming to me. How could I not stand up for Jesus? How could I not speak up? How could I receive the gift of salvation and then selfishly reject the grace of suffering for Jesus? I couldn't. That's not living worthy of the gospel. You know, according to 2 Timothy 3.12, who's going to be persecuted? All who desire to live a godly life. And how many? How many? Let's all say all. All of them. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. How many in this room have been persecuted for living or standing up for Jesus in the last week? Last week. Okay. How about the last month? This year? Ever? Okay. If you're not being persecuted, then one of two things are happening. Either we're not living a godly life, and the world never sees us as any different, or we are hiding our light under a basket like Matthew 5.15 said. Now why can I say that? Because all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Remember I said last week that the people of Philippi found uh, that the Christians' lifestyles were very un-Roman. They were very disturbed that they wouldn't stand up or bow to give Caesar honor. These Philippians were being persecuted for living and testifying of Jesus. And Paul is trying to encourage them that this is a grace gift. God did you a favor and gave you grace to suffer. 
not only just to believe, but also to suffer for him. Paul had such a profound revelation of the theology of suffering. I mean, just listen to what he said from our reading this last week in chapter 3. He said, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. Paul considered suffering for the sake of Christ a badge of honor. It was proof of his authentic love and his faithfulness to Christ. When was your love for Christ proven this way? In fact, most of the apostles had the same revelation. Acts 5 verse 40 says, When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council. What? Sounds like Philippians, doesn't it? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor and shame for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. I mean, let's just, let's just listen to Paul's uh, wall of trophies, his ministry wall of trophies in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, not the stupid kind. <laughs> not the Colorado stupid kind, okay? This is where they try to kill you with a rock. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I'm going to boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, I know we all think, oh, this is just for apostles, right? And pastors and leaders, missionaries, super Christians. But Paul's not talking to any of those people in this letter, is he? He's talking to normal, everyday Christians who live in a culture that hates them. And he's encouraging them by reminding them that they have a grace to know him, to believe in him, and you have a grace to suffer for him. And Paul is reminding them and us of this fact so that when we get opposed, we're not like, why do they hate me? We're not surprised. 
Suffering for Christ was not to be considered an accidental event or some kind of divine punishment. Paul is referring to suffering that is truly a sign of God's favor on your life. Believing in Christ and suffering for Him are both associated with God's grace. And the understanding that suffering and salvation are both gifts of grace, this is essential to our discipleship that we're in. This is essential to the perseverance that we have got to develop in our life. Sadly, the misunderstanding or the rejection of this has led to the spiritual departure of a whole lot of Christians. When I think about discipleship, I think about the Great Commission. Like, it was our memory verse, right? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What I'm about to say, I think, if anything was inspired, I felt so the Lord say this to me. I believe that the single greatest reason we ignore the Great Commission is because we have no revelation of the theology of suffering. We do not share our faith like the apostles did or the first century church because we believe it's God's will for us to be comfortable. We think God's will is that we should never, ever have to have a hard conversation with anyone. The Great Commission is being ignored because we refuse to suffer for the sake of Christ. The radical nature of the message of Jesus, it cannot be proclaimed faithfully without opposition. If we are faithfully living and sharing the gospel of Jesus, we are going to experience opposition. We are going to suffer for it. But we have rejected the theology of suffering. And we have replaced it with the gospel of a gospel of comfort. In fact, we've, I think we've erected a new Messiah. And his name is Be Nice, Don't Judge. You feeling me, young people? Listen. This is a gross, mutant version of the gospel. That's being fed to you. It's being fed to me. It's being fed to all of us by false Christians and cancel culture. The true gospel of Jesus is that everyone must die. Everyone must die to themselves. 
You must die and drop every other competing identity and put on Christ. Now, we've got to tell this message to white people, to black people, to brown people, to Asians, to Muslims, to Hindus, to Buddhists, to atheists, to agnostics, to gay people, to straight people, to trans people, young, old, family members, friends, co-workers, bosses, employees, business leaders, politicians, and teachers. And yes, if you want to live a godly life worthy of the gospel, you're going to suffer for it. Now listen, the theology of suffering, it's not about God being a sadist and and that we've got to become masochists. God does not cause our suffering. God is not looking for unnecessary suffering. God doesn't need or want us to suffer to make Him happy or to bring Him pleasure. But God gives us the grace to suffer because He knows, He knows that we will experience it when we are faithfully telling and living our lives worthy of the gospel. And so at the heart of a theology of suffering, it is imitating Jesus. And you know what? Jesus wasn't a jerk. He he was love. And he was still arrested. And he was still crucified. Paul wasn't a jerk to people. And he still got beat and flogged and imprisoned. Jesus Paul and all the apostles suffered because they stood up to culture, they stood up to governments, they stood up to religious systems with the gospel of Jesus. That's God's will for us. That is why Paul uses the language, it has been granted to you. You know, when Jesus told us to turn the other cheek, he was preparing us for suffering. But we've confused love with be nice. And it's come down to this thing where if we don't support sinful lifestyle choices of others, or our, our immaturity you know, says that's not nice. And so we justify supporting everyone and every choice by calling it love. It's not love. It's just being nice. And we have made a Messiah out of be nice, don't judge. You know, it's not nice to tell someone about the saving and transforming power of Jesus. They have to change. Well, is it nice that they get to go to hell? Was that nice? Huh? I mean, if someone's driving down a road and the road ends, you know, going off a cliff and you don't tell them, is that love? Huh? Well, I don't want to judge their driving. I want to criticize how they're driving. But they're going to die. How is that love? 
It's not. You know what the motivation behind be nice is? It's not love. It's selfish self-preservation. Now again, the point's not go out and be a jerk for Jesus. The point is be faithful to the message of Jesus. That's going to be all you need to get the suffering that you require. That's it. Just be faithful to that, and you'll get all kinds of trouble. You'll get in all kinds of trouble. You will suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, how does the theology of suffering fit with joy? Well, like the apostles that we just read about in Acts 5 who went out rejoicing, it should bring us joy to hear that someone stood up for Christ especially when it costs them something. Not because we like to see people suffer, but because it secures our assurance that that person is truly a disciple of Christ. It is only in the fiery trials of persecution that we finally make our decision to be committed to the gospel or to deny it. See, anyone can claim to be a Christian when it costs them nothing. But not many pass the test when they are asked to give everything, like the rich young ruler. Joy comes from knowing that we are all in this together. In fact, Paul says in verse 30, he says, you're engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Paul and the Philippians, they made up this heroic fellowship of the gospel, which meant that the Philippians shared in the same conflict with Paul. See, their conflict, whether it was in Philippi or if it was Rome, or Paul's in Rome, it was the same conflict. What they saw Paul endure in Philippi and then what they themselves were enduring in Philippi along with what they had heard was uh, Paul was having to go through in Rome. It was all a part of the same, the common conflict that we were all going through. And Paul's point was that he and the Philippians were all recipients of grace that they had been given these gifts of salvation and suffering, and their mutual conflict was a testimony that their grace was on their life. Do you have this testimony of grace on your life? As benefactors of the gospel, we are instructed to be like Paul, a gospel-first people living our lives as citizens of heaven, worthy of the gospel, standing firm in one spirit as we are planted firm by the work of the Holy Spirit in a graced unity with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel as a team together like in a a mutual sport. While we are supporting one another, we are uh, coordinating and promoting the gospel together 
And this we are to be doing while not being frightened in anything our opponents have to offer. That means no panicking. It means calm assurance. We are to do all of this understanding that God's grace is including both salvation and suffering. You know, if we imagine grace to only be pleasant benefits and blessings, then we will think of suffering as anything but grace. And there are a lot of confused people who have walked away from God, they've walked away from the church, and they have walked away from His grace. Let me just share a possible a list of ways in which you could or probably should be experiencing suffering as a Christian. I'm just going to give you some scenarios. Imagine it's, uh, it's Gay Pride Day at school. And you know you shouldn't participate or celebrate a lifestyle that's forbidden. And so your parent lets you stay home, but it's an unexcused absence. And now you can't play in the tournament. Is that suffering for the gospel? Yes. Or what if you went to school anyway, but you won't wear the button, you won't wear the shirt, and you get bullied for it? Is that suffering? Mm -hmm. What if your friends find out that you're a virgin and that you're waiting until marriage before having sex and they make fun of you? Is that suffering? Is that the kind of suffering we're supposed to do? Yeah. How about at work when they take up a collection of money to give a wedding gift to a co-worker who just got married to their same-sex partner and you politely refuse and now everyone in the office hates you? Is that suffering that we should be doing? And these are just passive ways. <laughs> this isn't you saying a thing about anything. You just refuse to participate. These have nothing to do with sharing our actual faith, telling people about Christ and repentance and dying to themselves. What about if uh, we lose our job or get kicked off the team because we did share our faith with a player? Is that suffering we should do? Mm -hmm. What if your coworker wants to take some supplies home from the supplies closet and wants you to take some too and you tell them it's wrong? that it's stealing, and now they won't talk to you anymore. Is that the kind of suffering we should do? Yeah. Taking a biblical stand on the issues of marriage, sexuality, gender identity, abortion, it is going to bring us suffering. It's going to bring persecution. And so when culture plays the music and commands us to bow down to the golden idols, we're going to have to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're going to have to stand up for righteousness. Stand up for truth. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where speaking truthfully really starts to show up. Now I realize 
This seems scary. I know it does for young people. It does for adults, too. You may think you don't have what it takes to be persecuted. That's why Paul says that God has graced us to be able to suffer. We stand side by side when we strive side by side without fear as full recipients of both the grace of salvation and the grace of suffering. This is worthy of the gospel. This is what full citizenship looks like. This is what will produce joy in the midst of our suffering. Because we are in this together, engaged in the same conflict as Paul and the Philippian Christians 2,000 years ago. This is the grace that God has given us. Can someone say amen? Here's the action plan for the week. Please uh, read and do your hear journal on Colossians chapters 1 and 2. We're memorizing Luke 9, 23 through 24. And then I want you to discuss in your family discipleship time and in your discipleship groups your thoughts on the theology of suffering and how it's affecting you when it comes to living worthy of the gospel. Will you guys do that this week? All right, let's pray. I know this was heavy. But the Great Commission is at stake. So, Father, I am praying right now that we would not be afraid by anything and those who oppose us. That the grace to know you would drive deep in our hearts, but also the grace to suffer for your sake. That we would not find it surprising that when we tell people about you and ask people, surrender their lives that they would be angry or hostile so I'm asking today God for courage to rise up in our hearts I am asking God that we would not dismiss the theology of suffering that we would see our lives as meant to be spent for the sake of the gospel that our self-preservation would die in Jesus' name. We would put an end to our, our selfish living, God, and we would put ourselves in, in the places that you would have us be to share your love, the dying world. So today, God, I'm asking for extra grace, both to know you and both to suffer. Help us, God. We want to live worthy of this gospel. We want to put our lives on this side of the scale and be worthy of the weighty gospel on the other. We thank you for your presence and your love, God, and your grace that covers us. Be with us this week and help us, God, to be a shining light, not under a basket, but on a hill, salt and light to this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.